Good morning, everybody. My name's Peter Milliken. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at the church and uh, occasionally get to preach. It's great to see everyone here on this frosty morning. And um, yeah, I pray this morning that uh, what we share uh, together in here in God's Word is going to bless you. Um, I'll just give you a, a quick uh, warning, or I don't know if it's a warning or a bit of information, is I tweaked my neck last night, so if I sort of focus on one side and don't go to the other, that's why. Um, so I, it's bringing a whole new meaning to when, when God calls Israel a stiff-necked people. I understand it now. It's like they just they can't turn. They won't turn. So uh, uh, hopefully that doesn't uh, interrupt us too much. Um, I, uh, I've, I've spent a bit of time in the States. Um, I've lived there for uh, five years in total. And um, one of the things you realise when you live over there is just how different um, Australians speak to Americans. I mean, we're both speaking English, but it's like it's, there's, there's different, it's a different language going on. And the words that we have for things are different to the words that they have for things. And so, uh, for instance, we would say footpath and they will call it a sidewalk, right? So it's just you, you get used to these kind of differences there. We say hot chips, they call them fries, uh, we say toilet, they say restroom. It's way more polite. Or, uh, you know, we'll walk in, you got, a, you got a toilet, mate? And they'll be like, excuse me, have you got a restroom? And just so different. Uh, here's one you got to be careful with. Uh, they call them flip-flops. We call them thongs. And over there, thong means something very different. And so you've got to be really careful just how you might use that one. Um, and thankfully, my wife's gotten used to me uh, calling flip-flops thongs. Um, and then there's just like Australian words that are very unique to us. And they don't really have an equivalent over there. Things like bogan, uh, dunny, um, chock-a-block, you know, those phrases. And uh, probably one of my favourites is the word, or it's two words, uh, fair dinkum. And uh, some, we, we don't use it as much as we used to. I think some of the newer generation doesn't use as much as that. But fair dinkum, it means it's the real deal. It's the genuine article. And so we use that all the time. And because we're a country of yobbos and larrikins, we often spin a yarn and somebody has to say, are you fair dinkum? And what they're really saying is, is this true? Is this actually what happened? Uh, sometimes... If, uh, if you, you know, you're talking with friends and you know, they, they put out an idea or you know, they, they talk about maybe going on a trip somewhere, you reply like, are you being fair, Dinkum? Because you just want to know, is this true? Are you actually being serious? Is this legitimate? Um, if you're buying something online or from Marketplace and you're looking for a certain brand and you wonder if it's a knockoff and somebody's trying to scam you, you want to know, is this fair, Dinkum? Is this the real deal? And uh, one of the questions that we should ask, and I think we often have asked, is, is our faith fair dinkum? Is there such a thing as fair dinkum faith? Is there such a thing as not fair dinkum faith? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And all of you have asked this question, whether you've used that language or not, um, when we have uh, known someone who either, when we were younger, they made a profession in uh, of, to believe in Jesus, and now when you look at that person or you know that person, you, you, you don't see that playing out in their life. They've either walked away from the faith, and you've asked the question, when they made that decision, uh, was that fair dinkum? 
And uh, we all have family, um, probably either in our immediate or extended, of people who seem to have made a decision to believe in Jesus and accept the gospel. And yet as time has gone on, um, nothing in their life seems to match up with that. And maybe even, and this is the case in my family, uh, they, they have outrightly spoken that they don't believe that anymore. And so uh, we're going to pick up a conversation that we left off last week where Jesus comes across a bunch of Jews who believe in him and then we find out that it's actually not true belief. And uh, I just want to be really careful this morning in, in what we're going to um, talk about. I know that it can be um, quite a, an emotional um, topic of conversation because there's loved ones that we know uh, who may be in this space. And so, uh, you know, I, I, there is a tension here of me wanting to teach the truth um, of Scripture, but also doing that in a really careful way. And so I just want to say from the start, um, if, if, I, if, I don't, if you don't feel like I've loved you well this morning, or I haven't been able to communicate with this with the grace that I wish that I could, um, would you forgive me in that? Um, and uh, you can send Pete an email, all the elders. Um, but I'm going to do my best to teach what I think is faithful to Scripture while still hoping to love you well in that. So we started this conversation two weeks ago. So if you haven't been here for the last two weeks, I'd encourage you to uh, listen to the last two sermons because th- th- this conversation started two weeks ago when Jesus said that he was the light of the world. And anyone who follows him will no longer walk in, will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so we unpacked what that means. And, and, and basically what w- that means is that uh, Jesus has the life of God with him. And if you, if you are connected to Jesus, you have the life of God. And this is shown as light. And if you don't have the life of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are in darkness. And darkness is total separation from relationship with God the Father. And there's so much more to that. So go back to week one and uh, listen to that because I unpacked that a little bit better than that. Um, and then last week, we, we looked at the conversation of Jesus and these group of Jews who then, um, after that statement that he makes, they, he starts a conversation with a group of Jews about this light and darkness and about the truth. And he makes claims about himself as, that he is telling the truth. And the reason that he's telling the truth is because he's telling them exactly what the Father has um, shown him. And so he claims to be... Um, the Son of God. And he says at the end, and this is where we finished last week, uh, that if unless you believe in him, he says, you will in fact die in your sin. So this is a huge statement that he makes to a group of Jews who are the nation or part of the nation of God. And so it's after that statement that we pick up where we're going to today. And uh, we're going to get to kind of where I started in a sec, but I just want to finish off this section, and then we're going to see that there are some Jews that come to believe. And so this massive statement, and this prompts the Jews who are listening to ask in verse 25, so 825, if you want to turn there. They said to him, 
Who are you? That makes sense. After Jesus says, if you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. And they, they are still trying to figure out who Jesus is. Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. And this happens all the time. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and to the Jews, he'll say something and they completely miss what he's saying or they'll take something that he's talking about in a spiritual way, they'll take it as physical and completely miss the truth of what Jesus is saying. And so uh, this, this great and terrible statement that Jesus makes and uh, it, it prompts them to ask who he is and Jesus replies saying, I, I am exactly what I've been telling you from the beginning. And if you walk through the book of John, Jesus makes all sorts of declarations and statements about who he is and where he's from and how uh, what he says is true. And he does these amazing signs to prove and back up what he says. And uh, there's this summary in John 5 verse 18, where John kind of summarizes um, almost the first five chapters in a way. And so when Jesus says, I've been telling you from the beginning, really what he's saying is John 5, 18. This is what it says. Uh, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so that's what Jesus has been saying. This is Jesus' claim. You can't kind of go through the Gospels and get to the end and be like, I think Jesus was just saying he was a good person. I think Jesus was just saying you should be nice to each other. I think Jesus was just a really wise teacher. No, Jesus doesn't let you go there. Jesus himself all the time claims to be equal with God, that he is from God the Father. And so there is no kind of uh, middle ground here with Jesus. It's either you believe in what he says and who he says that he is, or you don't. The middle ground actually puts you to the side that you don't because you disagree with the man who's preaching and telling the truth about himself. So this is what he's been saying from the beginning. This is what he'll continue to say throughout the book of John and he'll continue to give signs as to why what he says is true. So Jesus hadn't deviated at all from his claim. Uh, verse 28. Uh, so Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority. But speak, just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Lifted up here refers to the crucifixion of Jesus that He will go to. He will be nailed to a cross for the forgiveness, for the punishment of our sin and for our forgiveness of the sins of the world. And Jesus says that the crucifixion is going to be the sign to you guys that he is who he is claiming to be. Now, Jesus isn't saying that everybody who witnesses the crucifixion is going to believe in him. But he is saying that if they do come to know Jesus, it will be because they will understand the crucifixion. And surely it will be because of the cross. Just duck over for a second to Acts chapter 2. This is the start of the church. And Peter, uh, Jesus' disciple, gives this 
this amazing sermon. It's really long. We're just going to go to the end of it because this is what he says. And this is to a group of Jews, right? The start of the church, it's all Jewish. It's, it hasn't gone to the Gentiles yet, okay? So this is, his audience is, is uh, Jewish, right? And this is what he says to them in uh, chapter 2, verses 36 and 37, at the end of his sermon. He says, uh, Let all the house of Israel, okay, therefore know this for certain that God has made him, this is talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, so he says to them, you crucified the Messiah. And he points to the cross. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And they repent and get baptized and they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Peter points to the cross as the sign of Jesus, uh, the one who can take away your sins. And then the resurrection happens and that is the confirmation that everything that Jesus said and did was true. It is the ultimate sign of Jesus being the Son of God. And when we look uh, into the, uh, the, the future, into revelation and prophecies about these end times, and we see this turning of the nation of Israel, the, the, the statement is that they will look upon, the, uh, upon him who they have pierced. Right? It is a reference to the crucifixion. And so Jesus says that is going to be what you will recognize and that you will see that I am who I am claiming to be. Verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Okay, finally, we think we're getting somewhere after this back and forth that's been going on for ages. And they seem to be missing uh, what Jesus is saying. Finally, they get to a point and they come to believe in him. But not so quick, because we're about to come across probably the, one of the hardest and challenging interpretations in the book of John. Because in a moment, we're going to see that these guys actually don't believe. So in 30, they come to believe. And the question is, is it real faith? Is this genuine belief? And Jesus, as he often does, he doesn't leave people guessing or wondering where they sit in regards to him. Often Jesus actually spends a lot of time making sure that people are aware that if you believe in me, this is what it means. And a lot of people walk away. And so Jesus uh, is, is one of my, uh, my favorite teachers, Howard Hendricks. Um, he, he used to talk about that Jesus spent more time showing people the back door than the front door where actually he would always qualify what it meant to follow him and what it ended up resulting in, a lot of people actually walked away from Jesus rather than stayed with him. And so what that means is if, if, if Jesus had a church, then there'd probably be quite a few people exiting um, than, than staying in the building. And so Jesus spends a lot of time actually qualifying, hey, this is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to believe in me. And I'll just give you some warning. It's hard. It's hard teaching. It's an all-in, um, every part of you, forever kind of deal. And so in verse 31, he's going to expand on what it means to believe in him. And so verse 31 says this. 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, he is the same group of people, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now it's really important to see what Jesus isn't saying here before we look at what he is saying here. There's an if at the start of this. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Notice that uh, he doesn't say that if you abide in my word, you can become one of my disciples or you will be one of my disciples. He says you are one of my disciples. You see, this is not a conditional statement that if you do this, then you can become one of my disciples. It is not a, you must have a belief plus works, that's heresy. It is not a conditional if. It says, if you abide in my word, you are, you simply are my disciples. In other words, it's not conditional. It's what we call an indicator or an indicative. It has the idea of an indication, not a condition. So Jesus tells these audience that one of the ways that you know if you're a disciple, a true disciple, is that you, you abide in my word. What does it mean to abide? It's the Greek word meno. It's sometimes translated to remain or to stay or to continue in. Contemporary usage of this word around the time that the New Testament is being written, it, it is used of a soldier who stands fast in battle, not giving in. It's of someone who lodges residence somewhere. It's got the idea that you, you live here permanently. It's not a short-term rental. It's not an Airbnb that you come and you visit and then you leave and you go somewhere else. Abiding is not a once-off past event. It's, it's an ongoing, continuous, present action. It's not something you point back to and say, yes, that, I, I did that back there. It's permanent, forever. I don't know if anyone's done any like first aid training or CPR training. But, and I haven't done it for a long time, I probably need to do it again. Uh, but one of the things you do, uh, well, you used to, I'm assuming you still do it, when you are assessing someone to see if they need CPR, is you, you come up to them and you, uh, you might grab their hand and ask them, like, hey, if you, if you can hear me, squeeze, squeeze my hand. And, you know, um, they might do that. And then you put, you put your ear uh, to their mouth and you're looking down at their chest, at their body. And what you're doing is you're hoping, well, to see if, if you can feel their breath on, on your cheek and you're looking to see if their chest is raising up and down to see if they're breathing. And um, really what you're doing is you're looking for signs of life. And uh, if there's no signs of life, then you probably need to start doing CPR and working through all that process. And what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us the signs of new life. Of, of genuine belief. And he says one of these signs of life is that you abide in his words. And, and what happens as one does that, according to Scripture, is as, as you abide, that there is fruit that comes out of that. And the fruit is, 
is, is proof. It is of, of genuine regeneration that the Holy Spirit is doing inside you. You are a new creation. The Holy Spirit is regenerating you, and it's showing up in all parts, in all parts of your life, different parts of your life. And the fruit is, is not uh, what makes you a Christian. It's something that comes out of being a Christian. It's an indication that there is regeneration happening. It's a sign of life, the new life that's in you. And we have to be really careful with, with our fruit, though, because often we think that fruit always looks like these grand, amazing works of God, and it can be, and we thank God for that. But often the time, fruit looks like really hard, ongoing, painful work of sanctification, where He is going to work on you being an angry person or someone with a short temper or somebody who, who is prone to, to lying and deceiving. And, and that work the Holy Spirit is going to do in you is going to take a long time and it's going to be painful because you've been doing that out of your flesh for a long time. And you've got habits and hang-ups that you've just done over and over. And often the fruit is long-term, painful and messy. But hopefully, there is fruit there. And in fact, the Bible says, if the Holy Spirit is in you, there will be fruit. And that will be a sign of life within you. Uh, if we just flip, flip over to John 15 for a sec, Jesus is going to say this same thing to his very disciples. All right? the, the 12 closest guys or 11 closest guys. He says the same thing to them. Uh, chapter 15 and verse 8, actually start, start in 7. He says, If you abide in me, there's that word, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove, prove to be my disciples. Right? There is this idea that the fruit is proof. <clears throat> it is the outcome, not the input. Okay, this is really important because often we think I have to muscle up and some sort of fruit here to, to, to make myself a Christian or to prove to others that I'm a Christian or that this makes me a child of God. No, the fruit just naturally flows out of being that. You think of the metaphor itself of fruit. It comes from a tree. And uh, let's, just, let's just say this was an apple tree. And the apple tree is an apple tree well before it actually starts producing apples. And apples are just the natural outworking of what this tree is going to do. It doesn't have to, you know, try really hard and clench its fists. It just happens as it works itself out. Fruit is the outcome of being disciples of Jesus. And um, Jesus says, if, if you're a disciple of mine, you abide in my words. You, you agree with him. You come under his teaching. You, you understand that you have, a, you have a new master, a new way of, of living. You, you hold fast to the commands of Scripture. Even though they're uncomfortable, they could be painful, they could be inconvenient. You stand fast. You don't throw in the towel and... And you look back at that, well, I did pray that prayer once and, 
that that was that was the moment and I don't ever go on from that or have an allegiance to someone One of the ways that people say this is that we're saved by faith alone. But the faith, faith that saves is never alone. And so it seems that the Bible has this category of people who initially believe, who have this, this agreement with Jesus in something that he says. But as time goes on, it shows itself not to be genuine. Here's an example of that in John. And then you can think of... The, the parable of the sower in the uh, synoptic gospels where the, the, the seeds, it falls on rocky soil and there is this initial belief and they receive it with joy, it says, and then temptation comes by and, and they fall away. 1 John 2.19, this famous verse, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained, there's that word, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown they were actually not of us. Now, I'm not saying that these verses don't have some interpretive issues or nuance. But there is this understanding and this category within Scripture that there is initial belief for some that never goes on. Now, there's a really important part to this because probably you're sitting there asking the question either of yourself or of someone else, how do we know? How do we know if I'm genuinely saved and who is and who isn't? And I want to say a couple of things. The first one is I don't ever presume to know somebody else's state of salvation. I, I think, I just kind of assume they are saved and, and, and it, I realize that it, it's really not up to me at all as to, to know somebody because I don't know their heart. I don't know your heart. I don't know what's going on inside. I don't know what that journey looks like for you. I can only really make a judgment call on my own genuineness. Uh, I have a, have a friend who I'm quite close with. Uh, I remember watching him get baptized um, as a teenager, and uh, everything seemed genuine to to me. Um, made that profession of faith, and um, you know, just recently um, heard you know from from his own words himself saying that wasn't really genuine from me. I, I don't actually think I ever really believed that. Um, from my perspective, it looked it looked as genuine as I've ever seen, um, and so. I don't know, and um, I don't have to know. It is not my job to kind of know that and decide that. That is, that is God's place where he looks and knows the heart of each and every person. And uh, the other part of that is um, sometimes we feel like there is this burden for us to um, again, prove ourselves, even convince ourselves. And yet the Scriptures talk about that this is actually a work of the Holy Spirit that gets done in your life. That when you believe in Jesus and you make that commitment to Him, uh, the Holy Spirit indwells you and it's His job 
to sustain you. He actually sustains you. He's the one that's at work within you. And so there is this tension within salvation where there is accountability for your own decisions and yet God is at work within you making that happen. And so I never write anyone off. I never write anybody off. Um, I never write somebody off who I think has walked away, that didn't seem to be genuine or anything like that because, again, the Spirit can do a miracle. The Spirit who first regenerated me and is continuing to do so can do that uh, genuinely in somebody else who looks like they may be very far or lost or in darkness. And I've seen people who have walked away and then returned. And I've seen people who I thought would never come to faith come to a saving, real, genuine faith in Jesus. And so I never write anyone off. One of the reasons I think this can be tricky for us is some of the history behind our language around salvation. right? And so we're just very quick little church history tour here. Puritans, right? These group of people who love Scripture, very somber about sin and very, uh, very well written about grace. They loved, they loved the Savior and they loved grace. They were strong on sin, so they were strong on grace and really got the gospel really well. Love, love reading them. Some people don't because they're quite full on. Let's just put it that way, right? They believe, this is mid-1600s through to about mid-1800s, salvation is a work of God. And they said that you put your faith in Christ and you are converted for the rest of your life. And they would never say that somebody became a Christian. They would say, it would appear that he has placed his faith in Christ unto life. And then they would watch you. And they would look for those signs of life to see if this was genuine work of, the, of God or not. And George Whitfield is this famous, famous English Puritan preacher. He was, he was from England. He would go over to the States and, and preach messages. And he would never say something like, we saw 300 people saved. He would say, we saw a great host of people seemingly repent. And it would appear that many have placed their faith in Christ unto salvation. And then he would finish his sermons often, not every time, but very often, he would say, your blood is off my hands. You have heard the truth. May God have mercy on your soul and bring you to that place of repentance. If not, you shall most assuredly, assuredly pass into damnation and perdition. And then he would finish. And uh, so that's how we're going to finish today. I just thought I would announce that over you. No, and, and, and so they were just very like, uh, this is the work of the Spirit. It's not our job to kind of bring people to this place and know for sure if people are saved. And if they are saved, it will play itself out in their life. Then there was this man that came along by the name of Charles Finney. Did anyone go to um, Christian Outreach College, Highlands? All right, there's four houses at uh, COC, I was in Wesley House, named after John Wesley. There's Booth House, William, named after William Booth. And there's Liddell House, named after Eric Liddell. And then there is Finney House. And it's named after this very man, Charles Finney, right? And uh, when I was at school, they were terrible. But um, supposedly they're right now. 
He came along in the mid-1800s, and he was really the first to initiate this thing that we all know about now and is very normal called the altar call. And uh, he was quite an emotional um, preacher, and he believed that you needed to do a physical act of getting out of your seat and coming to the front and uh, identify yourself with Christ to be saved. And he was the first one that started using this kind of technique or, or understanding of salvation. And the, the sad part, a lot of people love Finney, but actually Finney um, had some really questionable understanding of what salvation was. He did not believe in penal substitution. And that was that uh, Christ actually t- is your substitute on the cross and he takes your place. He didn't believe that. What he believed was that Christ was an example to show us how much God hates sin. And so um, with that in mind, he thought that he, um, it was important that people would get to a point where they would um, be so upset with their sin that they would come forward and identify with Christ and God's opposition to it. And he started the altar call, right? And, and it, people started copying it because it, was, it kind of grew and got some momentum. And a guy called Billy Sunday copied it. And uh, then there was a guy um, called, what was his name, Dwight Moody. Um, you might have heard of him. He copied it with some better theology. And then there was another guy that copied it called um, Billy Graham. Um, and he had even better theology, which was, which was good. And so this idea of an altar call, you come forward, you pray a prayer, you fill in a card, and you're saved, and that's kind of the end, and, and you can just do whatever you want after that, um, really came about in the last couple of hundred years. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean you're not saved, but there is this idea of belief in Christ that is an ongoing thing. It's not a once and forget about thing. And so Jesus says, you, if, you, if you believe in me, you abide in me. It's, it's an ongoing, continuous act. And you'll abide in my words. Okay, so this is kind of the, some of the stuff that's going on here in John. Back to the text in verse 32. Here's another sign of life. And you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. Christ says, you will know what I say is true and it will set you free. Free from what? Remember the context that Jesus is talking about here, making the claim to be the light in the darkness. He says, my words set you free. It liberates you spiritually from ignorance, sin, spiritual death, that darkness they answered him, remember, these are Jews, that we are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, that's a crazy statement. Because if you know any of Israel's history, they were enslaved by Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Greece, then Persia, sorry, Persia, then Greece, now Rome. Right? So they were definitely enslaved. And so they clearly, either, they are either hugely um, delusional Or they're not talking about the physical enslavement. I think they're talking about, they understand this is a spiritual one. They they viewed themselves as spiritually right with God the Father. Based on their physical descent from Abraham. We're children of Abraham. 
And Abraham received this promise that God was going to make them a great nation, that they'd be a blessing to the other nations. He'd give them a land and out of them would become a Messiah. So why would they need freedom? They are God's chosen nation. In other words, Jesus, we're not in darkness. We are the light. We're in the light through our physical generation from Abraham. Does that sound like abiding in the words of Jesus? No, they are in disagreement with Jesus. And Jesus answers them and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Here's a symptom of the darkness. Before you were saved, if sin came knocking at the door, you always answered it. If sin stirred in you, you obeyed it because you were a slave to it. After salvation, when you sin, because you still will and you still do, it's not because you have to obey it, but because you choose to. In some sense, you're actually returning to a former position that you used to hold, an identity that you used to be in, even though you are no longer in that. And part of the Christian life is you learn, you, you are learning how to walk in your new identity. And some learn to walk quicker in that than others. Some take a lifetime, decades. We are all still learning how to walk in our new identity as sons and daughters of God in some way. All the time. But it was possible, it is possible to say no to sin. The unregenerated person has no hope against sin. There is no improvement plan for the flesh. In the Roman culture um, at the time, the slaves had no rights, no security, no permanent place in the family, but a son. A son was a son forever. Full rights, full privileges. The eldest held the, inherited the majority of the wealth from the father. And here Jesus says the son remains forever. And when he talks about the son, he's, he's talking about himself. And we talked a little bit about this uh, last week, that Jesus is part of the Godhead. He and the Father and the Spirit are uniquely in relationship together. And when you become a Christian, you are included in that relationship and you identify as a son. Verse 37. I know that you're an offspring of Abraham, yet... You seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do uh, what you have heard from your father. Translation from Jesus, we've got different fathers. I know you physically descend from Abraham, but spiritually that's not your father. Another way to say it is Jesus saying, you're not really Jewish like you're claiming to be. You seek to kill me 
My words find no place in you. I speak what I've seen from my father. You do what you've heard from your father. These guys are in opposition to each other, and Jesus calls it out. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. What are the works of Abraham? Genesis 15, 6, when when God makes a covenant with Abraham, it says that uh, Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. What do they mean, we are born of sexual immorality? Two things, I talked about this. Common view at the time was Jesus was a product of sexual immorality that Mary had shacked up with a Roman soldier in in Galilee. And so they believed that that was how Jesus came to be born. Um, doesn't seem like Jesus' dad, um, Joseph, was on the scene very much. We don't hear from him again after the birth story. Um, when Jesus is on the cross and he is dying, he looks at John, his disciple, and he, and he gives his mother to John and John to his mother and says, you know, this is now your son and this is now your mother. And if Joseph was around, he probably wouldn't, he wouldn't have had to do that. And so there is this idea that they are having a go again at Jesus and who he is and saying, you're coming from sexual immorality. We aren't. We're legitimate. And then they also believed that because they were Jewish, they were from Abraham, there was this idea that not only were they, um, a, a, when they physically descended, they also spiritually descended from Abraham. And this is why they are in the light. I'm going really fast to get through some of this. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Jesus says, If you knew my father, you would love me because he sent me. We do this with friends all the time, or sometimes. Friends who we love, if we've got a truly great friend, we generally love the people that they love. All right, I've got a really close friend in Northern Ireland. His name's Gareth. And uh, Gareth and I have walked through some really special seasons in our life together. We were at seminary together. We were roommates. We had bunk beds. And um, as adults, um, that's a blast. And, um, uh, but Gareth and I are really close. And I love Gareth, and he loves me. And uh, we never say that to each other, but we do. And, and I just, if there was a scenario that one of his family members was coming to Australia and, and they got over here and they were in need of something, maybe they needed somewhere to stay, maybe they needed somebody to take care of them or anything like that, I would put my hand up in a heartbeat and they would come and they would stay at my place and I'd take care of them. And uh, as they, was, they were leaving, they would, they would probably thank me or something like that. And you know what I would say to them? I would say something like, you know what, a brother or a sister of Gareth's is a brother or a sister of mine. Why is that? I don't know his brothers and sisters that well, but I know him. And I love him, and so I love who he loves. And Jesus is saying, if you knew my father, you'd love me. Because I am the exact representation of him. And because you don't love me, that shows me your heart's disposition towards the Father. 
So, where does this leave us as we wrap up? Here's some signs of life and some signs of death for you to think about. As I put these up, I'm acutely aware, or I want you to be aware that you may come across a sign of death here that's going on in your life. This is not, a, oh, if this happens once or a once-off, or if you've experienced some of this, um, it means that you are not believing in Jesus or going on with your Christian walk. But if this, was your, if this summarized your whole life, all of these things, I would be worried for you. Uh, and I say that with, with a lot of love and care. Not to try and freak you out or um, make you question anything, but to just be aware of like, this is some of the signs of death. That you don't know Christ, you don't abide with Christ. So here's some of the first one, unaware of sin. Just have no... Awareness of sin. And unrepentant, if you are aware of that sin when you would commit it. If there was sin going on in your life and you were aware of it, you are unrepentant about it. Agnostic, sorry, agnostic, antagonistic towards Jesus' teaching on sin, salvation, righteousness, judgment, holiness, I mean, I could go on, love. I mean, when Jesus says, you will abide in my words, it's all of his words. It's all of his teaching. If, Jesus, if you're antagonistic towards Jesus, that would be a warning sign. Glory to self. You always seek to bring glory to yourself. Now, I do that sometimes. Okay, so... There's that warning, just like, hey, I, 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 that is in me at times, right? Um, more, more regularly than I would like. But if my whole life is marked by that, that is always my desire. That could be a warning sign. Apathetic to inter, inner change. When you say, that's just the way I am. That's just who I am. Now, my father was like that. I'm like that. It's just who I am. I don't want to change. I don't want anyone to change me. Resistant to the teaching of Scripture. Here's one, self-sufficient. There is nothing in your life where you think, I need Jesus. I need the Lord to do a work in my life. I need the Lord to show up in my life. I need to be in, in communion with, with, with God on this. I, that's just not, and, and then finally, there's, there's no fruit. And I don't just mean over like in a day, in a week, in a month. I just mean over years. Years and years, it's just, there doesn't seem to be anything going on there. There's some warning signs. Signs of life. This means you know and you abide in Christ. It is not perfection. Okay, Do not hear me saying today that you are perfect and you never sin and you never get anything wrong and there's never any dips or anything like that. Okay, That is not the Christian life. Christian life is you struggle with flesh. I'm worried about someone where, there is, where they don't care about their sin. 
where there isn't a, a battle against it, where they aren't struggling against it. They've just given up. You long to do what is pleasing, and you have a sense of, of guilt um, about sin and when you commit it. And you go and say sorry to God, to the person that you've brought that offense to. There's a sense that you've changed permanently where you say, I used to be this and I'm not anymore. And I'm never going back there. You give glory to God. You, you want to, at least. There is a desire within you to, to somehow glorify God with your life and your talents and, and your money and all those sorts of things. I'm not saying that's always your motivation, but there's times where that's present. There's the fruit of the Spirit showing up over time in your life. There, are, there, is, there is progress of um, fruit over your lifetime. You look to Jesus. His words guide you. They instruct you. You are happy to sit under His teaching. You have no problem with the gospel. No problem with the fact that you, you uh, used to be a sinner. That you were lost. Now you are found that you're in desperate need of a savior. You look to Jesus every day. You're willing to submit to his teaching and commands. You look to God for help in a crisis or suffering. You desire to be faithful. You seek to be obedient to the commands of scripture and you talk to your heavenly father. Now, if I was doing all these things all the time, I, I think God would just take me because I've, I've reached the, you know, the state of, of um, as, as high as you can probably get in terms of walking closely with him. And so when I say these things, I don't say these are all the things that you need to go out of here and go and do and try and like get there on your own. No, this is, this is a sign of life that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. The last thing I want for you guys is to go out and feel this weight or this burden of like, okay, here's all the things I'm going to do this week. Because we know that that just doesn't work. You are not going to be able to bring these things about by the flesh. These are fruits, signs of life of the Spirit at work within you. Just as I finish... Um, I just wanted this morning, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to have a look at the list. Both of them will be on the screen. <clears throat> and I wonder if there's just one on there from either side where you, um, you feel convicted about and uh, you would ask God to do a work in your life um, that through His Spirit which indwells you, he would either give you a desire for some of this stuff or there would be one in your life where you would, you would ask him and maybe you've already asked him, just continue to ask him, God, would you change my heart on this? Would you help me to look to you when problems arise in my life? Would you give me a love for your word? Would you help me because I'm apathetic to change? Um, just pick one of those. Pick one of them off the list. Give it one minute. Uh, just to have a, have a talk with your Heavenly Father who cares for you, who knows you, who loves you, and ask Him for His help. 
And then I'm going to pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, um, we desperately need your help. The, um, the gospel is simple, and yet it is, it, is, um, it is a battle at times to release our desires and our wants that are contrary to you. God, I just thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his teaching that um, he came, he offered us life, he, uh, he gave us um, the chance to get out of darkness. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each one of our lives. God, I pray that you would give us the desires that line up with you, that you would continue to regenerate us into um, the image of your Son. And God, uh, that we would remember and embrace the Spirit who is at work within us. May no one leave this place feeling like they need to rustle up some works. They need to um, put together some resume. But God, to live in Christ to abide in his words, to draw near to the one who brings us to you. So I pray these things in his name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.